romantic style. For March, we'll be considering five competitions of historic proportions. Each week, we'll look at a couple or more of our favorite monarchs, and you will vote on the winner. You can vote anytime during the month. Please, please follow me on social media so you can participate and vote. I'm at at Shakeup History on Instagram and Twitter, and Carol Ann Lloyd Shakeup History on Facebook. Our first competition is about the very foundation of the monarchy. Which monarch do you think contributed more to the essence of kingship in early Britain, King Arthur or Richard the Lionheart? Those monarchs take the field on Wednesday, March 3rd, and you choose the winner. Next, a rosy battle, or should I say, a rosy war. We've looked at the Wars of the Roses before, but this time we're pitting king against king. You make the choice. Who deserved to win the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI or Edward IV? They both had at least one victory over the other, but now it's time for a final round. Your vote chooses the big rosy winner. Then it's on to the Tudors. The big guy himself asked this question in 1537 in the Whitehall mural. Did Henry VII or Henry VIII contribute more to the Tudor dynasty and to England? Henry VIII answered that question, choosing himself, but I'm not willing to take his word for it. So what do you think? Which of the first two Tudors made the most difference? Then, as it's Women's History Month, as well as March Madness Month and Monarch Madness Month, our final two contests will be between the queens. First off, a classic battle between cousins. Who was the more successful queen, Elizabeth I of England or Mary, Queen of Scots? Use whatever criteria you like and choose your winner. And finally, we can't end a royal rumble without a nod to the women whose lives redefined Henry VIII over and over and over and three more times. The six wives of Henry VIII changed England, changed Henry, and changed history. So now you decide which wife had the most impact. Who changed Henry or England or history the most significantly? So, are you ready to rumble? Monarch Madness is back. Last week, we reached back to some of the earliest days of the English monarchy to watch the battle between the legendary King Arthur and the real and legendary Richard the Lionheart. King Arthur pulled out to an early lead, which she is maintaining. And now for round two, we're jumping right into the middle of an epic battle, York versus Lancaster. You'll be voting on which king deserved to win the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI of the House of Lancaster versus Edward IV of the House of York. Both men were the son of a warrior. Both men sat on the throne. Both men won the crown in battle. So which king, Henry or Edward, do you think deserve to be the ultimate winner of the Wars of the Roses and round two? The House of Lancaster and Henry VI. Henry VI was the son of one of the greatest kings in English history, Henry V. Son of that great warrior, Henry VI was the first king of England to inherit the French throne. King of France and King of England, all before turning a year old. And there's the problem. The early years of Henry VI's reign were also the early years of his life. When Henry V realized he was dying, he made provisions for his baby son's reign with his brother sharing responsibility. So, young King Henry VI was surrounded by uncles with their individual personalities and competing agendas. 
Even as a baby, Henry VI had to play some of the roles required of a king. On the 28th of September, 1422, the interim council of Henry VI joined the king in his chambers at Windsor Castle. The baby king's hands were touched to the white leather bag that contained the royal seal as it passed from the keeper of the chancery rolls. The keeper would deliver it to the treasury where it would remain until a new chancellor was appointed. A little more than a year later, at nearly two years old, Henry VI was on his way to his first parliament. Catherine of Valois and the royal retinue left the king's nursery at Windsor Castle to begin the journey to the Palace of Westminster. The next morning, the king threw a tantrum as he was carried to his coach. Everything was delayed for a day to give the king a chance to settle down. Parliament couldn't open without the royal presence, so the opening was delayed. The king, young and dependent as he was, represented the royal presence. The duties were carried out by the men around him, but there were times when the king's physical presence was required. Why did go to all this trouble to have a child participate in ceremonies he obviously didn't understand? Because he was the king. The king was chosen by God. The responsibility of everyone around him was to make things work until he grew up and took control. Seven-year-old Henry VI was crowned in Westminster Abbey. The coronation included a series of ceremonies, an offering at the high altar, oaths, and anointing with holy oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Afterwards, Henry was clothed in royal vestments and crowned with St. Edward's crown. The crown had to be held by two bishops standing on either side of the boy king, which was because it was too heavy for him to wear unaided. Then he was off to be crowned king of France. The two coronations of a child king had limited results. The ongoing battles in France did not result in English victories. King Henry VI's abilities to manage the factions at court, even as he grew up, demonstrated the growing cracks in the power of the monarchy. Proclamations and pageants were no substitute for real leadership. The success of the Lancastrian dynasty depended on its ability not to break under the weight of the claims and burdens of kingship. And more troubles were coming. When the king's uncle, the Duke of Bedford, died in 1435, keeping the kingdom running became more difficult. The king was far from ready to really take over, and Bedford had been running the show. Now, into the power vacuum stepped William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk. Suffolk built up his influence through strong connections, good fortune, and bold actions. He was one of the strongest nobles in England. His marriage to the wealthy widow Alice Chaucer, granddaughter of the famous poet, brought more land and introduced him into the center of international politics. So Suffolk became a real power player at court. But there was another guy who also wanted a seat at the table. Meet the York family. The York family were descendants of King Edward III, just like Henry VI was. Richard, Duke of York, was a loyal servant to the king and wanted a more important job. The king needed someone to establish order in France following the Duke of Bedford. He appointed the Duke of York Lieutenant General of France. This was York's big break, so he headed off to France. Under York's command, England maintained control over Normandy and stabilized English losses on the continent. Despite his successes, York was frustrated because he had to pay his troops and other expenses with his own money. He returned in England in, to England in 1437 to participate in the king's council, but found he wasn't invited. The other nobles seemed to resent York's power and wealth and thought he was arrogant and demanding. 
Even so, York was good at his job, so the king reappointed him as lieutenant general of France in 1440. York's wife, Cecily Neville, accompanied him to Normandy, and their first three children, Edward, Edmund, and Elizabeth, were born in Rouen. While York was in France, the king chose some new favorites. His Beaufort relatives gained prominent position, especially Edmund Beaufort, who became Earl of Somerset. Suffolk and Somerset wanted peace with France, while York wanted to continue the war. When York came back to court in 1445, he expected to get the job in France again. But instead, the king appointed Somerset, and two years later, York was shipped off to Ireland. It was a 10-year appointment, so it looked like he'd be gone for a while. Trouble at court. Things went from bad to worse for the court of Henry VI. The wars in France were going badly, and the Duke of Suffolk was blamed. The English kingdom in France and memories of Henry V's glorious victories at Agincourt and elsewhere disappeared. Parliament turned against Suffolk, and the king agreed to banish him. As Suffolk sailed away, his ship was intercepted, and he was killed on the spot. Rebellions followed. Jack Cade and his followers challenged the king and his council, demanding better government. Henry VI was facing resentment to his rule from many fronts. He had primarily avoided the troubles of kingship for most of his reign, but he could no longer hide from them. His people were rising up against him. And, most dangerous of all, one of his strongest subjects was making a move. The Duke of York had decided to return from Ireland. He came back to England in 1450. York felt he was needed to bring order to the chaos that was simmering in England. But the long enmity between York and the Duke of Somerset made calm impossible. With Suffolk gone, Somerset had emerged as the king's closest advisor, and Somerset made sure York was not welcomed by the king. Queen Marguerite was also clear and vocal in her support of Somerset and her dislike of York. Marguerite was convinced that York was a threat. King Henry was comfortable with Somerset and Marguerite, so he didn't want York's interference. But the king's court fell apart in 1453. That summer brought disaster in France. The English army was destroyed by a French force. This represented a lasting defeat for England. Henry VI was devastated and, possibly as a result of that, fell into an illness that left him unable to speak, unable to recognize those around him, or unable to even comprehend what he was. He couldn't eat or walk. It was if he had retreated completely from adult life and was an infant again. The next March, the Duke of York was elected as protector and defender of the realm. It was agreed that he would act until the king recovered. The Duke of York had finally achieved his goal of a key role in the king's government. The challenges were significant, with chaos and disorder on every front. But York was determined to do what he had returned from Ireland to do, settle the government and move the nation forward. The battles begin. The king recovered as suddenly as he had become ill about a year later. His physical strength was restored. He was able to move around. He was able to communicate. He recognized those around him. He was delighted to see his wife and meet his newborn son. All those around him reportedly wept with joy. York did not weep with joy. The king formally stripped him of the protectorate and his captaincy of Calais. Despite York's genuine attempts to maintain the government and steer the nation into a good path, he was now being treated as a usurper. York, along with his allies, went north to raise an army. 
Word reached Somerset in London about York's growing support in the North. Somerset called a great council of the nobles and invited York and York's ally Salisbury to attend. But York was on the alert and smelled a trap. He refused to attend. He stated that he and his followers were true subjects of the king, but not of the men around the king. Somerset gathered strong supporters of the king. They started to move north, leaving the queen and the young Prince Edward in London for safety. The two groups were headed toward each other and met at St. Albans. There were initial attempts at negotiation as heralds carried messages back and forth between the king and York. The royal forces were hoping for additional reinforcements to arrive. So they suggested York and his men withdraw to their lodgings outside the town. The two sides would meet again the next day. But one of York's supporters, the Earl of Warwick, had other plans. A small group of his men made their way through the back of town and surprised the main gathering of Lancastrian forces in the town square. Caught off guard, the royal forces fled. Warwick's forces broke through the barricades and advanced. Some reports indicate that in the chaos, the royal standard was raised and the battle began. York's forces joined in Warwick's and attacked. As battles go, it was insignificant. The fighting lasted a very short time. Fewer than 60 total men were killed. But politically, it was a disaster for Henry VI and Marguerite. Although the king was not seriously wounded, he was captured, and he lost his primary leaders, including Somerset, who was killed. His royal army had been soundly outmaneuvered and defeated, and he himself was now at the mercy of the Duke of York. York attempted to rule as protector again, but with the king healthy, this didn't work. Queen Marguerite was determined to protect the realm for the king and their son. York and his supporters were allowed to participate in the king's council. Henry VI arranged for a, quote, love day, where York and his supporters would join with the king's supporters in a show of unity. But it was only a show. The battle started right up again. When Parliament opened after the battles of Bloor Heath and Ledford Bridge, York and his primary defenders, the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, were told to appear. But they did not. And therefore, they were found guilty of treason. It was at this point that York decided to claim the throne of England. He felt his descent and claim to the throne was superior to that of King Henry VI. King Henry, on the other hand, said his claim was the best. Under the direction of the Archbishop of Canterbury, an agreement was reached in 1460 that Henry VI would continue to reign and York would be his heir. Marguerite and the king's forces disputed this and continued to fight. The Duke of York was now fighting for the crown. That fight was short-lived. While at Sandal Castle for the Christmas holiday, York rode out to Wakefield Green. The Lancastrian forces were waiting. Hopelessly outnumbered, York's armies were destroyed at the Battle of Wakefield. The losses were catastrophic, with 2,000 or more Yorkist soldiers killed. The Duke of York was either killed in battle or captured and immediately beheaded. His son, the Earl of Rutland, tried to escape, but he was overtaken and beheaded as well. It seemed the Yorkist claim was over. The new Duke of York. King Henry VI's supporters felt confident and grateful following the Battle of Wakefield. Their forces had been victorious. Richard, Duke of York, was dead. Also dead were his son, Edward, Earl of March, and his great supporter, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury. Henry VI was safe, even if his ability to rule the country was declining. His wife and son were safe, and the young prince represented the future of the dynasty. Only two real threats remained. 
York's eldest son, Edward, and his cousin, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. York's son was only a teenager. He had never commanded an army before. Even though Warwick was a great war leader, would he risk his future to put an inexperienced young man on the throne? Yes, he would. It turned out Warwick's reputation as kingmaker was about to take off in ways no one could have imagined. And it also turned out that that 18-year-old knew how to fight and how to win. Edward, the new Duke of York, gathered his troop in the marches to face the Lancastrian army at Mortimer's Cross. The unusual weather and extreme cold created the appearance of three suns rising in the sky. That unnatural sight frightened the troops, according to contemporary reports. Edward reassured the troops, declaring it was a sign from God that they were favored and would win. Backing up his words with a stunning level of aggression, Edward attacked with fury, placing himself in the middle of the fiercest fighting, establishing his name as a warrior and commander. The Lancastrians were defeated, and Henry VI was captured. Only a month had passed since Wakefield, but the game had changed completely. Edward and Warwick were headed toward the capital. There was no opposition. On February 27th, Edward and his forces were welcomed into London. He immediately took up his father's claim to the throne. On March 1st, Edward was proclaimed King of England by the Bishop of Exeter. That meant there were two men claiming to be King of England in March 1461. Even though Henry VI probably wasn't taking the lead of his forces as his mental health continued to decline, his supporters were fighting hard on his behalf. When the two sides met at Taunton in March 1461, everything was at stake. The losses were devastating on both sides, particularly for the Lancastrians. It was the largest battle of the Wars of the Roses by far. Contemporary reports describe the snowy field and rivers covered in blood. The human loss in that one day represents one of the greatest battlefield losses in British history. Additionally, the battle was politically significant. It established the Yorkist victory and Edward's claim as King of England. Henry VI, Marguerite, and Prince Edward fled to Scotland. Other nobles who survived the battle joined them. It would be years before the Lancastrians would be able to raise forces and attempt to return Henry VI to the throne. Ongoing Battles Edward was crowned King of England in Westminster Abbey on Sunday, the 28th of June, 1461, anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He knew he owed his success to the Earl of Warwick, and so did Warwick. Recognizing the extraordinary value that Warwick represented to his reign, King Edward was willing to allow Warwick to play a leading role in government, and Warwick made the most of it. The Milanese ambassador to England reported that, quote, Warwick seems to be everything in this kingdom. Warwick reveled in the power and grandeur of his position and influence. He was delighted when an ambassador wrote to King Louis the Eleventh of France that England had, quote, two rulers, Monsieur de Warwick and another whose name I have forgotten. Warwick knew this type of statement was common in Europe, where his influence was strong as well. Warwick, thinking he could run the kingdom and choose the king's wife, eventually got to Edward. He chose his own wife, even though his government was actively pursuing a diplomatic marriage elsewhere. Edward secretly married Elizabeth Woodville in 1464. Not only was she not a wealthy foreign princess, she was a widow with a large family. When Edward announced he was already married, Warwick was furious. So furious that he turned against the king he had put on the throne. Eventually, Warwick fled to Marguerite begging her forgiveness and pledging to restore the true king, Henry VI, to the throne. 
and Warwick even convinced the king's own brother George to join him in the betrayal. With Warwick on the Lancastrian side, the tide turned once more. Warwick was successful and chased Edward IV and his brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, to Burgundy. Henry VI was proclaimed king once more in 1470. Henry VI's second reign didn't last long. Edward gathered troops in Burgundy and returned in 1471. Even though the Lancastrian forces fought fiercely, Yorkist victories at the Battle of Barnet in April and the Battle of Tewkesbury in May were decisive for Edward IV and his forces. Warwick was killed, as was the son of Henry VI. Henry VI was captured and somehow died in the Tower of London the night of the 21st of May. In fact, you can even visit the cell where he died. So, Edward IV was King of England once more. He rescued his wife from Sanctuary, where she had spent the previous year. He had a new baby son. His brother Richard had proven an extraordinary warrior and supporter. There were still a few rebellions, but King Edward IV was able to put these down with relative ease. He ruled for the next 12 years. Time to choose! Now, we know the Wars of the Roses didn't officially end when Edward IV and his followers defeated Henry VI and his followers in 1471. There's still Richard III and Henry Tudor to come. But for round two of Monarch Madness, our York versus Lancaster debate comes down to Henry VI, who became king as an infant and never really grew into the job. A king who wasn't effective, but did not break the law, or become a tyrant. Or Edward IV, who at age 18 took up his father's claim and fight for the throne. A king who struggled to keep his throne, but then retook it and ruled peacefully for a dozen years. Vote for your choice. In all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at History. Thank you for joining round two of Monarch Madness. Be sure to vote York or Lancaster. And watch out for round three, which Henry contributed most to the Tudor dynasty, the seventh or the eighth. Won't that be fun? Thank you for playing Monarch Madness. Now, before you go, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a rating, and share with a friend. And I always love hearing what you think. Thank you so much. Be sure to make your voice heard. Vote for your favorite monarch at at Shakeup History on Instagram and Twitter and Carol Ann Lloyd Shake Up History on Facebook. And let's keep shaking up history together. <music>